Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roots and Foundations podcast. I'm Jeremy Manuel. And I'm Nicole Carlin. Today, we are going to be looking at Joshua after a, a little bit of a break for the holidays. Yes. But um, yeah, so we are at Joshua. We just finished up with Deuteronomy, which left us off with the kind of previous generation of Israelites. And Moses kind of gave his final speech to kind of remind this new generation as they were going in of kind of their commitments that they've made to the Lord. And now we have Joshua, who is leading the Israelites into the promised land, hopefully. And because we had, we'd also talked a little bit about the order of the books of the Old Testament and that we're following the Hebrew order or the the Tanakh order. And we we did do a a conversation about the Tanakh. How that's going to affect us is we've now kind of moved out of the Torah, which is the first five books. And now we're into the next section, which is the prophets. And so Joshua is the first of what would be called the former prophets. And so we'll stay with the order that most people are familiar with through judges and then things are going to change up a little bit. So this week we're on Joshua and it's an interesting thing with Joshua, this real strong sense that Joshua is this new Moses character. And that's what's really going to show up as we read through the book of Joshua is the, the author really wants you to realize that Joshua is the new Moses and they make a lot of parallels to help us see that that he has taken on the mantle of Moses and he is leading Israel into the, their actual inheritance of the promised land. Yeah, and it keeps on reminding that that Moses is, is dead. Like that's something that pops up a number of places. So this, it's in some ways shows how big of a deal Moses really was and how much he, he had been involved in shaping kind of the Israelite identity in some sense. You know, he, he freed, you know, he freed them through God's power from Egypt, has kind of with God set up this whole thing. And so that's how big Moses is. But it's also like Moses isn't here anymore. And so now we have a new leader and that's Joshua. And ultimately, it's not even Joshua. It's God. And that's who the ultimate leader is. And so it's the idea that Joshua needs to kind of be following him and that Israel needs to be following God as well. So it's that kind of idea of setting up Joshua as this new person who's pointing people to God. And that's kind of how it starts out is this idea of, of reminding the people to obey the Torah, to, to follow God. And that's kind of the way it, the, the book starts out is this idea of Joshua taking over Moses's mantle and how Moses isn't there anymore. And it's, it's somebody new now. And I think just like kind of as we move through each book in our mind, sort of reiterating or rehearsing sort of how we got here, just that memory of the fact that Genesis, you know, is the creation of all things in the first half. And then it brings us to this relationship between Abraham and God, which then through Abraham's descendants, we get this this group of people, the Israelites, um, who because of famine, when Joshua, you know, is sort of the the younger son who he f- ends up in, in captivity in Egypt, but then rises to power. But then now you have him inviting his family to escape famine in, in the promised land. Basically, they leave the promised land to go to Egypt to be saved because of the, the severe famine. But then 400 years later, they've gotten trapped there in slavery and God raises up Moses as a leader to bring those people that God has created this covenant relationship with through Abraham out. But when they leave, they run into trouble kind of going back to the promised land because they're struggling with being obedient and recognizing God as their leader. And Moses is sort of the facilitator of that season. And that's those things that we cover in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that brings us up to the book of Judges. And so sometimes it's just good to sort of stop and pull back and kind of say, like, can I, 
can I remember, you know, kind of how we got to where we are? And so here we are, and Joshua is is given encouragement by God. He's told multiple times to be strong and courageous, which is a good reminder as God's people to remember that God is in essence saying, I'm with you, this won't be easy. And so you need to be strong and courageous. And so he, in this kind of role of the new Moses, he he calls them to obey the law. He reinforces the commitment. but And he also sends out spies to the yeah. promised land, just like Moses did. Mm-hmm. And that's where we probably start into some of the familiar, if we're talking about familiar characters or stories from the book of Joshua, this sending the spies into the land for the second time, you know, the, the first time being, you know, when Moses was still around and the original spies to the land, it didn't turn out so well. Here, it turns out a little bit different. They send spies in the land and we follow a pair of spies that wind up going to the town of Jericho. And that's where they meet Rahab. And Rahab being a citizen of of Jericho, a Canaanite, she decides to kind of switch her allegiance. She helps hide the spies and decides to follow God in the in the process of that. So the, the spies are saved. They're able to escape due to Rahab's. They kind of give her a sign to tie a scarlet cord around her window and her and her family who are at her house will survive the destruction. And so that's kind of the like the, the result of the, the spies as we kind of get into this idea of, of Jericho. But it's kind of an interesting thing that I think a lot of people don't realize it happens kind of after that. And that's this whole, like, when the Israelites actually enter into the promised land, they send the spies before they've actually crossed the Jordan River. But whenever they actually do cross over in chapters three and four, we have this kind of small version of the Red Sea kind of happen with the the priests go in with the Ark of the Covenant and the waters kind of spread apart again to allow Israel to walk into the promised land on dry land. So it's this kind of interesting echo of that. Well, and in some ways you can almost even think of the incident with Rahab and the the Scarlet Cord as an echo of the Passover in a way. Like there is these, just these places where, and that's part of how Hebrew writing is designed is this idea of the remez or the remembrance Mm -hmm. and that they're going to tell us stories that should cause us to be like, oh, that's like this other time that reminds mm-hmm. me like I, and so they, they are designed. And so this crossing yeah. of the Jordan is to remind, and not only that they, as they cross through one member from each tribe uh, brings up a stone and they create this tower of 12 stones to remind them that God did this here, that mm-hmm. they, that God continues to help them put in place objects to draw their memory, not to the object. The object isn't sacred. The object is, has no meaning in and of itself. It's just some muddy river rocks. The mm-hmm. idea is that this object points their attention to th- remember when God did this great thing. And they make a point of saying that the river is at flood stage. That yeah. It's the idea that it's not just, and if you've ever seen a river at flood stage, even a small river can become quite a formidable uh, water ca- course. And this idea that it, it parts and the water piles up above them upstream. Mm-hmm. And then when they're crossed, it then is released and, and flows back down. And so, yeah, there's definitely sort of this miraculous moment of them entering into this new a- adventure ag- yeah. again. Again. Yeah, it doesn't get nearly the, the press that the, the Egyptian Red Sea... And no one no one's does. buried under the waters. They're, yeah, they're not being yeah. chased or anything. So it doesn't make quite as an exciting as a, a an animated event as it would in, in some of the other movie renditions of the Exodus. But yes. it is it is a powerful reminder to the people that the same God that brought them out of Egypt is taking them home to the promised land here. 
And then that leads us to another sort of familiar set of scenarios where Joshua runs into, kind of at night, he's walking and he, he runs into the angel of the, the Lord's armies, the, the sort of the, the angelic general. And he has this interaction. And in this interaction, Joshua doesn't understand initially who he's talking to. And he asks this military type person, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Um, looking to sort of see, is this person for the Canaanites or is this person for the Israelites? And the angel's answer is surprising because he says neither. Yeah. Yeah. That the idea that he's from God, but not necessarily, God's not necessarily on either side. It's, it's about who is serving who, you know, the God isn't there just to serve the Israelites and do whatever they want. He's not their genie in a bottle that, you know, you just kind of, okay, you're with us. You're under our control. You do what we want. It's more that God will be on their side if they follow him. It's not the the other way around. That ultimately he's got this plan mm-hmm. and that the Israelites are being permitted to partner with him. And this is actually a helpful kind of lens to understand what then happens when the Israelites come into the, Can- the the land of Canaan and the the war that they make on the Canaanites, understanding that God has basically said the Canaanites are behaving in such an uh, immoral and sinful way that they the land needs to be cleansed, that between their sexual immorality and the child sacrifice, the, the Canaanites have, have basically just fouled the land with their sin. And so God's plan is, you know, he's, he's going to kind of hit a twofer here in that He's going to bring the Israelites to the promised land that he made a covenant with Abraham about. But he's also going to bring about an alleviation of this oppression of sin at the same time. And so that's what God's about. And so when when Joshua's looking for kind of like, are you going to fight on our side? Are you going to fight on their side? The neither is that God's armies fight for God's purposes. And when we align ourselves with God's purposes, well, then we are on the side of God. God's not going to take our side. And I think if there was ever a book of the Bible that people could use to legitimize kind of holy war on other peoples, Joshua's the book people go to for that. What's intriguing is that by careful reading of the book, that's a false narrative. You can't say that because even embedded in this moment where if there was ever a time where God was going to be like, yes, I'm for you. You guys are my people. I'm going to take out these bad people and I'm going to put my favorite people in place. It's not what he says. Um, and I think that that's just a, a, an important and helpful uh, lens to understand what then comes next. And I think a lot of the problem comes whenever we kind of put our places, put ourselves, I guess, in the place of God. Because like I think so oftentimes we justify it by, well, this people are obviously not following whatever we think that they need to follow. And so it's okay because they are, you know, we kind of put ourselves in the place of God in, in that situation of like, well... It's, you know, we're going to do this because you're doing X, Y, or Z that we don't agree with and that isn't Or this is particularly sinful and it needs to be cleansed. And the fact is, is that God is saying, I have a plan. I'm going to take their, this, you're not supposed to be doing this. I'm doing this. Not to mention just where we are now is much different than where the Israelites were, that God's people aren't necessarily just one nation. It's not that he particularly blesses America or particularly blesses France, France Iceland, England or, or... Thailand. Any particular nation at all. It, it's the idea that it kind of transcends nationality at this point. Whereas then this is still kind of working at a at a national level. That right. And that God has this covenant with Abraham, which is the purpose of the covenant was to bless the Israelites, but also to bless the whole world 
through Israel, which we understand to be the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so that particular national allegiance, even even at the moment, the, the highest moment of national allegiance, the taking of the promised land, still doesn't elicit a, I'm for you guys and against them. Yeah. It's a, I'm for the plan of God, and that's what we're going to do. And the Bible Project takes great pains to point out that these battles that happen and that we'll talk about here in a few minutes are not... God is not initiating a genocide, and that this is really a unique moment in history. That when the these the, the the descendants of Abraham kind of arrive again on the doorstep of the promised land, that this God has certain things that have to happen, and His desire to kind of uh, eliminate the Canaanites or move them out of the way has more to do with their influence out of their sinfulness on the nation of Israel because of their role in bringing forth the Messiah. And that they need to be a holy people set apart in this particular place at this time for for this fulfillment of the covenant. And that it does not indicate that, you know, God particularly hates the Canaanite people. He, in essence, deplores sinfulness, child sacrifice, immorality, those sorts of things. And that that's what he's looking to bring about a transformation of. And I think it's good to also bring up the idea, like, I know oftentimes I've heard, you know, oh, well, you know, God says to totally destroy these people, to, to make sure to kill every last man, woman, and child kind of thing. This language is very much hyperbole. It's this idea of kind of heightening the sense of victory and, and was very common in, you know, the times that these books would have been written to depict victories and battles that way. I mean, honestly, it's even common for today. I mean, just even in sports analogies of this team destroyed the other team or slaughtered them or, you know, like it doesn't mean that one team went and killed every single person of the other team. It just meant that they had a decisive victory and there was really no chance. It wasn't even close. And so that's more of what's being looked at here. It's not that, you know, because you see these same Canaanites that are supposedly destroyed by Israel pop up again later on. So if they were completely destroyed, how do they pop Trade up in the them. story or how do they get yeah. marry with them later? Yeah. And I think another point, um, something that the Bible Project didn't brought up, bring up that I've thought about previously too, is that they do bring it up, but not as much as I'd like maybe, is the idea that God's not against the Canaanites coming to him. You know, even with the idea of Jericho, you know, like you have Rahab who says, okay, yeah, I'm going to follow you. But it's in this context that everybody in Jericho knows what's coming. And so it's this idea of, of what choice do you make? Do you say, God is coming and I, we've heard what he's done in Egypt. We've heard what he's done and he's given victories to the Israelites. Do we fight him or do we join him? Like, and they choose to fight him. They choose to reject, you know, it's this idea of like, you've got this big, scary force, force coming. coming and you decide, well, do we surrender and join them or do we, do we fight them and try our luck? And that's what Jericho decides to do. And they, they trust in their strength. They trust in the walls of their city and they fight against. And that's the same with, with any, you know, you have another group that, that comes along later um, in chapter, in chapter nine. 9, the Gibeonites, who are very much different than Rahab, who is pretty much straightforward in the way she deals with, with the spies. They, like, go to this, like, great length to deceive Israel, and, like, they dress in, like, all these old clothes and bring out their old packs and make it look Moldy like they're... Bread. They make look look like they're from this faraway land so that the Israelites will you know, get a treaty with them and just kind of not battle them. So they, they wind up joining Israel deceitfully, but... It's still... God accepts them. God accepts it. And... Yeah. And we're familiar with the story of Jericho, right? This is a familiar one. But the fact that they march around the city for seven days is an evidence of God's willingness to sort of say, like, at any point during those seven days, Jericho could have opened their gates and been like, 
your God is greater and we are going to submit to that. And, and so, but they don't, whereas the Gibeonites, <laughs> they, even though they, they do this kind of underhanded kind of display of, you know, that they aren't really from far away. They're actually fairly nearby. Yeah. And God, they're cursed to be lumberjacks. <laughs> lumberjacks all their lives. <laughs> they do a lot of singing and wearing plaid. It's yes. terrible. Um, but this idea that God does still honor that agreement and um, accept them, which is surprising. And so, I, yeah, there's there's just a lot of interesting kind of nuances to the interplay between God's support for Israel. And it really is very clearly contingent on their obedience. Mm-hmm. That his, he, that in essence, on the one hand, you could be like, well, that seems kind of, you know, hard that like they have to get it right or he, do, he doesn't work for them. But the idea is that more so it's this idea that he actually has a passion for all peoples and that this particularly special relationship with Israel is predicated on their following this model that he's given them so that they can be an example to the whole world that they like in essence their partnership is based on a job and their job is to be this holy people to exemplify to these other nations what kind of god the real god is and so and that plays itself out kind of in the stories of of Jericho and then later on with I or I I think I-E. it's pronounced IE but I-E. AI AI yes um, whereas Jericho, they are faithful. They, you know, march around this city. I mean, like, who thinks marching around the city is a good battle plan? Like, the fact that they're willing to do that for seven days and then blow trumpets and yell, and then the walls come tumbling down. Like, they're faithful at Jericho, for the most part, at least in the battle originally. What happens after Jericho is that there's this one guy, Achan, Achan, Achan. We're not sure. Yeah, whatever. He takes some of the plunder because, like, the part of the agreement before Jericho is that it's the first city being destroyed, that all the plunder gets destroyed kind of as an offering to God. That's kind of the the setup and what God says before it's all to go down. But this Akan takes some of the plunder and hides it in his tent. And they go, Israel goes to try to fight this next battle against Ai, and they get defeated because... The, this idea that their obedience to God is connected to victory has has kind of come up. You know, whereas with Jericho, they were faithful, so they achieved victory with this Achan or Achan doing what God had said not to. It, it affected this whole his whole nation, and the, the, the victory wasn't theirs this time until Akan is dealt with. Yeah, and there's and this idea of how insidious this kind of rejection of specific instructions are and how it, it creates these problems for Israel and that the real motive force behind their victories is God's power, that they are not winning because they are uh, they have more chariots, their spears are sharper, or anything like that, that they're winning because... God is, again, he's working out this plan that he has for the, the people and the, the situation in Canaan. And so that brings us to chapters 10 and 11, where the other Canaanite kings, they can go and, you know, kind of act as Rahab or Gi- the Gibeonites and, and say, this God is more powerful. These people are, are kind of unstoppable and we're going to submit to their, the, but they don't. They, in essence, fight back. And so, you know, Israel just racks up a whole list of victories under Joshua's leadership, which brings us to what Bible Project um, 
inspiringly calls the boring part of Joshua, which is chapters 13 through 22, but that those chapters are basically a, a verbal reading of a map. They are the boundaries between the different tribal inheritances. Mm-hmm. Which would have been very useful for the time, but is for us like, okay, that's nice. <laughs> yes. So always worth a read, but understanding that it might even be more valuable to maybe find a good map of Israel uh, at that, or the, you know, that land at that time and just look and sort of see where the boundaries are and, and kind of look at, and sort of see how that places different tribes because that will come up later. I just personally have a hard time visualizing where locations are in reference to one another by a verbal reading of the map. And that's their point is that this is valuable and it's key and it's God-inspired information. And basically it's the idea that that the promise to Abraham of having their own land is now being fulfilled and they're dividing that land up. I mean, does it need to be taking eight, nine chapters to do that? Well, that's debatable, but but it would have been much more useful for the people actually having that information then, you know, to know where your lands ended and began would be useful if you were living on that land. For us who don't even live anywhere near Israel... Right. And for later times with the nation of Israel, all prior to the coming of Christ, to know where these boundaries were would would eliminate disputes and and help to reduce the likelihood of civil war breaking out immediately in the nation of Israel over what was each tribe's inheritance. This way, it's clear and it's not up for debate what they get. It'd be like somebody going, you know, 100 years from now and reading our like land, you know, where my land ended and where the my neighbor's land began. And it's that kind of thing. It's very useful for me to know the lines of my property. But for, you know, somebody a hundred years later, you know, or a thousand or five thousand, you know, you know, like however many thousand years, you know, like it's, it's, it's a little more bit, data it's more data. It, it's helpful for historical purposes and helpful for certain things. And, you know, and as I said, for, for Joshua, and that age of the Israelites, it's, it's, it was crucial. It's crucial for like, and it's even just like Abraham's promise to his people, you know, or the promise to Abraham has now been, been fulfilled, at least to some degree. So it, it's useful in that, but it's, it's kind of a struggle probably for a lot of us to get through. And so that kind of brings us to the end of the book. And this is, again, where we see this echoes of Moses, where it's Moses had his sort of farewell to the troops, and this is Joshua's farewell to the people as well. And um, he once again kind of places this choice before them, um, while having a very realistic sense of how faithful they're going to be. The idea is, is that if you're faithful and you follow the Torah, you follow the law, that you will have life and blessings in the land. But if you're unfaithful, there's going to be justice. There will be repercussions for that unfaithfulness and they will be eventually exiled again. And so that becomes sort of the the big question mark at the end of Joshua is how are they going to do? Are they going to what what are they going to do next? So it's a it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. But only kind of not because I mean I don't remember if Joshua says it quite as clearly as Moses does or, or not about them. Like yeah, you guys aren't going to be faithful. But but that's kind of the hint that we've been getting is that Israel is going to struggle with faithfulness, and we'll see just how much they struggle. Yes. In this next book that we'll be uh, trying to tackle. Yes. So. Looking forward to the book of Judges. Yeah. So that'll be our our next one. So yeah, all I right. think that's all for this one. All right. All right. See you later.